According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth once again. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask the Father to bless our time of study today, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we ask for your continued hand of blessing upon us as we study uh, the life of Christ, wrapping up 10 years, what you have provided for us, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to look back, to review, to remind ourselves of how faithful you are. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. I remember we have today, this is May 7th, the 14th, and the 21st, three Wednesdays in May. There will not be a Life of Christ Christ class or any Wednesday morning class on the 28th. So if you all want to still meet for prayer, of course, ladies can meet for prayer and do that. But their Wednesday morning class will be suspended on May 28th, June, uh, the first few uh, Sundays and Wednesdays in, uh, in June. All right. If you ever struggle to find where the Harmony of the Gospels is located, just go to the home page and then type in Harmony, and Google will bail you out. You click search, and the very first search result is going to be Harmony of the Gospels, which is your PDF document. Uh, Also, it gives you uh, Life of Christ number one, which was the audio file where we produced that Harmony of the Gospels PDF document. So if you want to listen to that, you can listen to that. Or if you just want to bring up the uh, Harmony, you can click on that and it shows you there's your Harmony PDF and you open that and there's your PDF. We've been reviewing the early stuff, birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We uh, talked about the beginning of his ministry and the baptism, the temptations, last week as we were running out of time. This uh, Sometimes it's just fun to peruse the harmony. Just look at the table. Look at the, the episodes. Remind yourself, because uh, you got the, the date there, you got the event, you got the location, then you've got the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, for the temptation, it's Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13. Just a couple of verses in Mark. Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. It doesn't show up at all in, in John. And then you've got a long string of things that are in John. Notice, anytime you have a, uh, a, a long column like that, and with a whole bunch of gaps right there, right, you realize that's pretty common for the Gospel of John. John is 80% unique to John. He does not rehash everything that was taught in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It wasn't his purpose. The fourth Gospel was written decades after the three synoptic Gospels. Okay? Why do we call him a synoptic? because uh, they uh, soon, together, optic view, they have the same view. Their view is largely together in uh, their perspective on the ministry of Jesus Christ. John is the one that's not synoptic. John is the one that's unique in the, in his perspective. Uh, you get down to the Galilean ministry from 30 to 32 A.D. This is the bulk of his earthly ministry, because he's gonna. it runs basically to the fall of 32, about six months shy of his crucifixion. 
But starting with the healing of the nobleman's son there, following that wedding in Cana, uh, you got John 4, 46-54, rejected at Nazareth in Luke 4, 16-30, his move to Capernaum in Matthew 4, verses 13-17. You can think your way through the sequence of events of uh, Jesus Christ, his earthly life and ministry. The four become fishers of men. There's your verses, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 5. This table is, is going to be your best friend. You just tuck it in your Bible, take a look at it, and if you want to find where these uh, passages are, there you have it. If you want more teaching on it, you go get it off the website, and I'll show you how to do that here as well. Um, I think the uh, call of Matthew and his reception, the um, 12 apostles selected the Sermon on the Mount, that was huge. Uh, let's look at those notes. Sermon on the Mount notes. Matthew 5, 1 through 7, 29. You see that there? Matthew 5, 1 through 7, 29. That's, a, that's three full chapters of Matthew. Uh, not covered in Mark, not covered in John. Yeah, there's a parallel in Luke, a much shorter parallel in Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. In that section of Luke chapter 6, Luke will record many of the messages, a handful of the Beatitudes, some of the messages, some of the spoken messages, but he doesn't record it as the comprehensive event that Matthew does. In other words, what we would call the event, Sermon on the Mount. So, again, coming back to the website then, I would go to uh, Life of Christ. I would come over here on the, on the right-hand column to the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Then I would scroll down and I would look there on the right until I would find Sermon on the Mount. There it is, Sermon on the Mount. You following what I'm doing there? All right. And then what we have listed, we have listed there the uh, six audio files. Now, they're in newest to oldest order. That's just a default. If you want to reorder that, you can click on the listen button and it'll reorder them there, 97 through 102, or doesn't matter because you're going to select these one by one as you listen to them. If you want to listen to all six, go listen to all six. Or just pull up the PDF there, Sermon on the Mount. And we have our notes. All right, and again, print them off, tuck them in the back of your Bible, use them for a family devotion, use them for a personal Bible study. Uh, just have them on hand as you work your way through the uh, the passage here. Chapters 5 through 7 form the first lengthy discourse in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew teaches five great discourses. And actually, I have a consideration uh, before I went to Isaiah, Jeremiah. Um, part of the short list was to adapt those five um, sermons. So to take the Sermon on the Mount, the Mission of the Disciples, the Parables of the Kingdom, the Parables of Discipleship, and the Mount Olivet Discourse, to take those five Matthean uh, discourses and create a series out of it and use it on Sunday mornings for folks that can't come to the Wednesday morning class. It'd be kind of a nice uh, excerpt from the Life of Christ series to bless folks with on Sunday morning. Ended up not going that way. We're going to do Isaiah and Jeremiah instead, but Anyway, it's an idea. Maybe uh, maybe somebody else will do something like that. They'll make a, a home devotion uh, based on this uh, idea. And if you want to go, get all five of those. The notes are on the website. Go get them. All right. Jesus primarily taught his disciples, but the crowds were also in the audience. Matthew 5.1. Join me in Matthew 5.1. We'll take a look at the address. Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
So primarily it's for them. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And there's going to be a contrast between uh, folks that it's been given to understand and folks that's not been given to understand. They're going to ask him, why do you speak in parables? But notice at the end of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So even though he was primarily concerned about instructing his disciples, nevertheless, uh, the crowds were also in the audience. And uh, aspects there. All right. The early part starts with the Beatitudes, the Makarios happiness we've been dealing with in blessing and cursing on uh, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights in our 2 Corinthians series. Uh, the idea of Makarios happiness. Anytime you're looking at blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, like we have here, um, or that you might have from the Hebrew in the book of Psalms, it's makarios. You could translate it happy are. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the gentle. Happy are those who hunger and thirst. Go through these items of happiness. The Greek word for this is makarios. It has nothing to do with eulageo or eulagetos or any of the blessings that we have in Christ, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a separate issue. If you want to study blessings, study blessings. If you want to study makarios, study makarios. Try to keep them distinct, even though I think invariably you end up somehow blending the two. You can be Makarios happy regardless of the circumstances you have in life. That's irrelevant. You're having a good day, having a bad day. It's irrelevant. You're still Makarios before the Lord. The inner happiness that you have before the Lord, the, the spiritual peace that you have before the Lord is uh, described in this way. Beatitudes are followed by the similitudes. And the similitudes are important. Salt and light, verses 13 through 17, Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we got salt and light. You are light. You are salt. But stop. Ask yourself. Wait a minute. Who is you? Who is you? Who is salt and light? If we're going to apply salt and light, how do we apply salt and light? Is Jesus Christ talking to Austin Bible Church in Matthew chapter 5? Is this a church age passage? Are we salt and light? Okay. I believe we can make salt and light applications, but it's secondary applications in the benefit we have within our nation, within our state, within our community. But we are not the covenant nation upon this earth. Israel is the covenant nation upon this earth. Israel is the uh, earthly nation in the midst of all the other earthly nations through whom God would administer earthly matters. All right. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? That's the miracle of the uh, resurrection of the state of Israel and the, the future that Israel has. They will be salt and light once again in their future promises. All right, so Beatitudes are followed by similitudes. And yes, we do have a secondary application. We are preservative, seasoning and preservative element in society as we apply it. A light represents the ministry of believers as spiritual life witnesses to God's work in and through us. 
But we get these principles not because of Matthew 5. We get these principles because of elsewhere in the New Testament. New Testament epistles, church age passages, whereby with that understanding we can come back to the similitudes of the Sermon on the Mount and then draw a secondary application for us today in the church. Verses 17 through 46, point 5 in the outline. Jesus gave the longest portion of the sermon as an explanation of how the Old Testament will be applied in the kingdom. And this is the famous, you have heard, but I say to you, portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 17 and following. And a whole lot of, do you think? Well, let me tell you. Okay? I say to you, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the recognition that law will continue in the future kingdom. There will be law in the kingdom, what Lewis Barrett Schaefer calls kingdom law. All right? And it's worse than Mosaic law ever was. And this bothers some folks. They want to say, well, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. That's right. In the book of Galatians and in the New Testament, and for you and I in the body of Christ, that's absolutely correct. But the church ends of the rapture. We're back under Israel's stewardship for the tribulation and for the millennium. Understand how the millennium is going to operate with a priesthood, with animal sacrifices, with kingdom law. And you'll do much better with Matthew 5, 17 through 46, I think. And uh, your uh, righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, and this is the stretch where he adds the mental attitude to all of the external deeds of Mosaic law. Mosaic law has, of course, murder and adultery and stealing and all those external things. Kingdom law makes it worse. Kingdom law intensifies it. Kingdom law says that you can be an adulterer just by thinking about it. Okay? So the subpoints here to kind of summarize. And, and I'm just giving you a review. This is all just a review and a, and a fragrance of memory and a blessing of, uh, of things here today. If you want more, go get those MP3 files. The work assignment of Jesus Christ was not to abolish the law or the message of the prophets. That was not what he was here to do in first advent. It's not what he's going to do in second advent. The passing of the law will occur with the passing away of heaven and earth. Okay? Which will happen, actually, we're told. The work assignment of Jesus Christ in his first and second advents was and will be to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill it. And he fulfilled it perfectly in first advent. He's going to fulfill second law perfectly, or kingdom law perfectly at second advent. And they're not going to they're not going to keep it through human effort. They're going to keep it by grace through faith in, in the millennial kingdom. Rank in the kingdom of heaven is established as a reward for faithful obedience to the law's commandments. But the standard for righteousness will surpass the standard of the scribes and the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's a high standard. Because they were the pinnacle. They were the pinnacle of Old Testament legalism. Nobody outdid them. I mean, right? I guess we could say that. If you're going to be a legalist, at least be the best. That way you can look down your nose at all the rest that aren't as good as you. But at the end of the day, what are you? You're a champion legalist. Woo-hoo. Okay? Paul says it's all... Well, he had a 
crude term for it that related to a bodily function. Okay? We don't want to have any part of that. Now, kingdom law will be an intensification of Mosaic law to include the mental attitude sins, which produce the overt activity, sins of commission and omission. So adultery, murder, anger, all of this. All right. Summary statement. Our goal is the Father's perfection. Matthew 5, 48. You know, the law said, be holy for I am holy. It says in Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Talk about an intensification. (laughs) Right? Kingdom law intensifies Mosaic law. Whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And that's uh, what happens when kingdom law replaces Mosaic law for the nation of Israel and their operation throughout the uh, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 continues the Sermon on the Mount with practical messages for believers to live their perfect life. So not only does it say you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, but then in chapter 6 it tells us how to do it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. It goes on. Our greater than pharisaical righteousness is to be practiced before God in heaven in our giving, in our prayer, in our fasting. We're walking in, the, in, in uh, communion with God the Father day by day. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. That's not about an audience. The Pharisees were all about the audience. It was about people looking at them and going, ooh, look at those guys. Ah, they're so holy, right? They're holy as God is holy. I wish I could be like them. And giving them the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and hello, hello, rabbi, and so forth. Or in your prayer, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on street corners so they can be seen by men. Ooh, listen to them pray. Oh, that's impressive. Wow, I wish I could pray like that. Very eloquent, very powerful. Well, if you're praying for the audience oohs and ahs, if you are, if the reason for your prayers is so that you can impress people, that is all the reward you're going to get. You have your reward in full. You have just accepted receipt for every reward you're ever going to have for that prayer life. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. Pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who's in secret, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And likewise in fasting. They put on a gloomy face. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. People will look at them and go, wow, you must really be holy. You're suffering. You're, you're, you're fasting. You look horrible. Okay? And that's a, an item for boasting too. Okay? No, we want no part of that. If you're fasting, nobody should know but you and the Lord. And probably your wife, so she doesn't fix you dinner and then ask, why aren't you eating? Okay? Then there's the so-called Lord's Prayer. I call it the Disciples' Prayer. I call it the New Disciples' Prayer. A baby believer that's just learning how to pray, here's a model prayer for them to learn. It establishes prayer principles. For new believers to follow, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. Take this as an outline. I went wild with the A's. Adoration, anticipation, assent, acceptance, awareness, abstinence. 
adoration before the Heavenly Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just spend an hour in prayer telling God how awesome he is. And then anticipation of his coming kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy, will, uh, thy kingdom come. Anticipation of his coming kingdom. You think that will shape your prayer life? An awareness of his plan and program? An awareness of his timetable? A recognition for you and I, we have the added recognition of the coming rapture. The disciples didn't have that in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6. The idea that, uh, you know, this day my daily bread, and maybe this day is my last day here, the trumpet could sound. I have an anticipation of the coming rapture of the church. The ascent to his will. Not my will be done, thy will be done. Father, what do you have on tap for this day? Probably something that I wouldn't pick out for myself. Acceptance of his daily provision. Awareness of his forgiveness. Awareness of his forgiveness. Don't let me forget today that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Otherwise, I might get prideful. Otherwise, I might be judgmental. Otherwise, I might look at this other person and, and develop, harbor a mental attitude sin against them. I want to be constantly aware of the forgiveness I've received. I don't ever want to forget that. Always aware that I don't earn or deserve anything. So that I have a heart of compassion for somebody else that doesn't earn or deserve anything. I want to be like that woman weeping and wiping his feet. I don't want to be like the, the, the host, the Pharisee host that, that uh, did what he was doing. And then abstinence from evil. Um, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to have no part of my day, my thinking, my speaking, my actions. Nothing today I want to be involved in Satan's counterfeit program. I want to be completely saturated with God the Father's plan and program for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything else is evil. Our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So, oh, that's where that verse is. I was wondering where that was. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Okay, See what happens when you don't review these things from time to time? Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is... See, I think verse 21 is the most important verse of these three. You know, beyond just contrasting earthly and heavenly, the explanation, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? What are you focused on? Are you mostly an earthly-minded person every once in a while you have a heavenly thought? Every so often it crosses your mind that, oh, hmm, what would Jesus do? Or are you constantly heavenly-minded and every so often you're reminded that, oh yeah, I still live on this earth. Have I eaten today? Wait a minute. Okay. Are you so focused on heaven that the earthly perspective, you have to remind yourself from time to time, Oh, yeah. Which direction does it go? Where's your heart? What is your daily focus, your moment-by-moment focus? Perspective should be kept clear as we serve the Lord and reject the master of darkness, 22 through 24. The eye is a lamp of the body. No man can serve two masters. Where are your eyes focused? What are you looking at? What's filling your heart, light or darkness? Temporal life circumstances and details are in the Father's hands so we can relax and concentrate on spiritual matters as we walk 
by faith day by day. All right? Somebody else is taking care of those details. This is my assignment. All right? We, were, we had a planning session yesterday for the Africa trip coming up and charting out who's responsible for what and this and who's doing all that and who's making these arrangements and who's making those arrangements. And it's, it's, it's pretty neat if there are things that you know somebody else is taking care of. All right? I, I don't know how it's happening, but they've got it handled. So I can relax about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I know that uh, it's been arranged. They're gonna, uh, this person's been assigned. And they're picking us up at the airport. And they're driving us to this place. And, and they know how to find it. And they know how to get there. Okay? And this other person's uh, uh, been assigned. And this other person's going to help with laundry. Okay? And, and so then the question was asked, well, do we, need to, do we need to pack laundry soap? Do we need to pack? And, no, no, no. Throw, forget all that. Those are, that's not our planning. That's not our arrangements. Okay? They're taking care of that. They, they've offered. This is their, their, this is their provision. Okay? That's, you know, where are they going to get the, I don't know where they're going to get the soap. Not my, not my issue. Okay? I'm going to be, I'm going to be teaching uh, this passage of scripture. That's my issue. I've got to make sure that I'm, I'm ready to teach basic doctrinal studies. I've got to teach gifts, ministries, and effects. I've got to teach all the things that we're going to teach. Okay? But as far as where they're going to get the soap to wash my socks, I, that's not a part of my planning. Okay? Now that's the illustration. The scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Temporal life circumstances and details are in the Father's hands. And if I can paraphrase here, God's not stupid. He knows you need these things. Which I just love. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your temporal life existence as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's just earthly stuff. Look at the birds in the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. I don't see these great big, you know, bird farms out there. God takes care of them. Your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? On a, on a scale of you versus the sparrow, you're more important. God the Son became a man. The God-man identified with our testing and died on the cross. Okay? He didn't become the God-sparrow or the God-hamster. Didn't die on the hamster cross. Alright. Are you not worth much more than them? Your Father knows you need these things. Who, who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Take all the dithering, all the worrying, all the fretting, all the whatever, and you just spent the last 50 hours trying to figure something out. What did you achieve? Why are you worried? Who of you being worried can add a single hour? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They neither toil nor do they spin. You know, do they go to the lily Walmart to get their lily clothing? Not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, see, you're, you're much more important than the grass. What are you talking about? So do not worry. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we put on for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. See, 
He's got it handled. He's got a plan. He's got a provision. All you need to do is walk in His plan. Be obedient to Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will direct your steps. Make your path straight. Now, if you're out of His will, then don't be surprised. Okay? But stay in His will. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here is verses 25 through 34. This is your basic outline for the faith rest life. I don't know how the unbeliever does it. I don't, I don't know how the carnal believer does it. Or the cultural Christian without a fountain, who's not a true disciple, who's not a living in the Word of God. How do they do it? Well, simple. They're out there, like the Gentiles, eagerly pursuing all these things. They're chasing temporal life like the unbeliever chases temporal life. All right. Sermon on the Mount uh, continues, chapter 7, with a message that we are not called upon to sit in judgment over one another. All right. Not why we're here. Judge not, lest you be judged. And this is the boy, they, they throw that in your face. But they act like verse 1 sits by itself and uh, fail to recognize that uh, 1 through 5 is our context for how we deal with one another. We take the log out of our eye first, then we can see clearly to take the speck out of the other's eye. We're not to be hypocrites about it. We judge ourselves first. And it says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure will be measured to you. In other words, it's reciprocal, it's returned, and we are to have righteous judgment. We are to have discernment. And we are to start by getting the beams out of our own eyes, and then we are to take the speck out of the brother's eye. Of course, the God-haters, the Bible-haters, the leftists, and everybody else that just throws this at you to say, well, I can be... I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And you can't judge me. Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay, judge me. But judge me by the standard of the Word of God. As this passage says. By that standard, I am judged. By that standard, you are judged. This is God's absolute standard. Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. We don't sit in judgment over the unbelievers. The one another is believers in the local church. Okay? Again, I'm making secondary application of this because ultimately this is for Israel, not for us. But the dogs, the swine, I'm not out there telling unbelievers how to live their lives, trying to shut down immoral establishments and whatever. Might as well, I mean, I'll be just as effective trying to keep dogs from barking. That's what they do. Dogs bark. All right, unbelievers fornicate. I mean, goodness. What are you, you going to stop carnality? All right. They don't need the holy pearls of God's word. They, they need the gospel message. Until they are redeemed and transformed, they're going to hate the holy pearls of God's word. They're going to turn and trample you. And then you're going to act all suffering like you're undeserved suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're in divine discipline. You're reaping what you've sown. You disobeyed the command in throwing what was holy to the dogs. Don't act like you're some kind of a martyr. All right. Point 15. Our prayer life is guaranteed by a loving Heavenly Father who delights in providing for us. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. 
Ask, seek, knock. Ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and will be opened to you. Three imperatives. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. Him who knocks, it will be opened. This is our relationship. Ultimately, it's Israel's relationship in the millennial kingdom. We have a secondary application. You've got to take the whole Sermon on the Mount that way. Five, six, and seven. It's all for Israel. Our application is secondary. Uh, Sermon on the Mount also features many other well-known teachings of Christ, including the golden rule, the narrow and the broad gate, wolves and sheep's clothing, know them by their fruit. All of this is applicable for Israel in the millennial kingdom. Secondary application for us in the church. Golden rule. Well, in a way, you think of it as timeless. It applies to every stewardship, believers of every generation. I mean, when would this not be pleasing to God? Um, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. I mean, it's a summary essence of Old Testament. It will be applicable as a command in the millennial kingdom, but it's valid for us to observe today. Nothing wrong with following the golden rule today in the church. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. That's applicable today. Secondary application. In fact, I think we should pay more attention to that passage when we uh, get confused over public opinion, popularity contests, elections. All right. Majority is usually wrong just by virtue of the fact that the majority is following the path of darkness. Ten spies said, let's go back to Egypt. Two spies said, God made us promises. Let's go receive God's promises. Well, that was a ten to two vote. You see why I'm not big on democracy. Okay? When the demos has the kratos, it's a problem. Because demos is... Largely wicked. Uh, popular opinion released Barabbas and crucified Christ. Okay, I imagine those were uh, community organizers that were uh, stirring up the uh, the mob there outside the Praetorium on Thursday, no Friday, April third. All right. Wolves in sheep's clothing. It's applicable in the millennium. Secondary application in the tribulation. Secondary application in the church age. Know them by their fruit. Millennial application primary, our application secondary. Sermon closes with two warnings. 21 through 27. Entrance into the kingdom is not based upon what we have done for the Lord, but what He has done for us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in the will will enter. And what's the will of my Father? Believe in him whom he has sent. Okay? It's about what he has done, not about what we have done. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Look how charismatic these people are. All of these for instances all tend to center on the spectacular branch of Christianity that we call Pentecostalism today. 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did in your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? And they're, they're gauging their worthiness of the kingdom based upon their engagement in spectacular Christianity. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not based on what we've done for the Lord, but what he has done for us. You know, some of those stupid jokes about, you know, you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, why should I let you into heaven? Okay, And sometimes they're not jokes. Sometimes they're actually devices, fictional devices that are created for evangelistic purposes. And I guess, whatever, I, you know, sometimes they bug me, sometimes I have enough grace to get over it. But, um, you know, as if I have to learn the challenge and password to get into heaven. As if, as if somehow St. Peter is the gate master, key master, whatever, you know, what he says goes. Okay. <coughs> All right. What are you going to say? Why should I let you into my kingdom? Like, who are you? St. Peter? Are you kidding me? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Same as you. Get out of my way. <laughs> okay? But I don't expect he's going to be there anyway. I believe we're carried by the angels into the personal presence of Jesus Christ. All right. The strength of our house is dependent upon living the Word of God. Everyone who hears these words and acts on them. Now, this is a millennial application. Ours is secondary. Nothing wrong with applying this on a secondary basis. Why? Because we have the book of James. The book of James says, don't be hearers of the word only who delude themselves, but be doers of the word of God. So you see how this works. I've got the book of James about hearers and doers. That's applicable to the church. So then when I come back to this passage that's directed to Israel, I say, well, wait a minute. It's identical. It's similar. It's the concept. And so because James gives me the church age authority to then come back to a passage like this, I can adapt this to a church age application. See how that works? This is for Israel and the coming kingdom, but I can have a secondary application because of the book of James makes us a valid principle for the church in fact i can't think of any stewardship old testament new testament or anything adam and eve i mean nobody was ever called to listen to what god says and not do something about it okay there's never a gentiles in their stewardship job and his stewardship nobody was ever expected to know doctrine and not live it we've all been expected to live what we learn and so uh building the house on the rock. That's the metaphor. And the rain fell, the floods came, and winds blew, yet slammed against that house. He did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. There's your stability. There's your anchor. But stability in your Christian walk comes not in Bible class. That's where you learn. It's when you're living the Word of God then that you have stability. If you're constantly learning but never living, you're the unstable. You're like the silly women of 1 Timothy. Always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Weak women, silly women, weighed down by various laws. Captivated, actually, in First Timothy 3. All right.
everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. See, both groups heard it. It's just the second group that didn't act on it. It would be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Mm. Oh, the poetry of this passage is just beautiful. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. Isn't that great? It's a trinity of images in the poetry of this. So when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as one of their scribes. See, what had happened as the Hebrew canon was complete in the intertestamental era, when the scribes rose to their prominence, when Pharisaic Judaism uh, developed, um, there was no power in it. There was no power in it. It's remarkable what they did with it. All right, the crowds were stunned at the teaching of Jesus because they had never heard the word taught with such authority. And, you know, sometimes we get criticized. Our style of teaching, this uh, form of teaching to which we are committed, um, some people don't take it well. They think that, oh, it's, it's arrogant. Arrogant. Colonel Theme was called arrogant. I've been called arrogant. How can he know all that? How can you make those statements? Well, you teach as per your convictions. You teach the authority of the word of God. And more often than not, what they're reacting to is the authority. Oftentimes, it's a, it's a, it's a resistance to authority. So, because, I, you know, Theme never claimed to know everything. Not that I heard him say. I don't claim to know everything. I don't have omniscience. I have bobniscience. And bobniscience is uh, quite humorous, actually, because I know everything that Bob knows. <laughs> And sometimes Bob doesn't know what everybody thinks Bob knows, but that's all right. Lord knows. Any questions on the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, we took six hours to teach it back in the day, and I gave it to you here in 42 minutes today. Six hours that we taught starting January 25th and ending March 1st of 2006. So... uh, we are to be forgiven if we've forgotten some of the details in the meantime. <laughs> right? It's been a while. Good to review these things, isn't it? All right. Understand Israel's primary application. Okay? Israel. Jesus Christ was speaking of this coming kingdom, this imminent kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is early in the Galilean ministry. He's not yet reached the point where his nation has rejected him. He's not yet reached his point where he tells his disciples, stop telling them I'm the Christ. He has not yet reached the point where he starts telling his disciples, I'm going to the cross. <coughs> this is still early. This is still kingdom. Talking about the imminent arrival of the kingdom. And all of this is Israel's application, not ours. If we, if we take a secondary application from it, we, we only do so as we have other New Testament passages, church-age epistle passages. I'm talking Romans to Jude, right? Or to, I guess you can go through the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, And if you've got concepts in there that, that specifically apply to the church, then we can come back and take Israel passages, not just from the Gospels, but from the Old Testament, from Psalms, and make secondary application for the church age. 
we're clear on that, then we're in good shape. All right. What else happened in the sermon in the Galilean ministry? I'm not going to do Galilean ministry next week. I'm going to go to Judean and Perean, and then our final week together, I'll go to the Passion Week. But some of this early stuff, it's been a while. It's been a while. The um, Peter's great confession. Let's look at that. All right, let's go to Peter's great confession. Again, we open up uh, Galilean ministry. There it is, Peter's great confession. All right, classes uh, 167 to 173. Taught in 2007, from August 8th to uh, September 19th. Wow, seven classes. That's even more than the Sermon on the Mount. All right, well, join me in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. We've got 15 minutes to teach Peter's great confession. Simple. <laughs> just because it, we took seven hours to do it before we can do it in 15 minutes now obviously it's review fragrance of memories refreshment blessings to me this is fellowship this is fellowship in the scriptures He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? All right, they're all clueless. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. Son of the living God. Boom. Right? There it is. Israel's been waiting for their Christ for 2,000 years. Gentiles have been waiting for their Christ for 6,000 years. All right. And here he is. God the Son in the flesh. And Peter and, and uh, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you. I think that's Makarios. Happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, masculine. And on this Petra, different gender, okay? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. On this rock. What was the rock? Peter's not the rock. Yeah, the rock, well, technically Jesus, or actually in this context, the confession. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. The confession of who Jesus Christ is. What think ye of Christ? That's the pinnacle question of, of the universe. What think ye of Christ? Ask an unbeliever, what, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? Why did, why did the Father send him? 
All right. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And lest you think that's Peter all by himself, it's all the apostles, it's all the church. We get that from chapter 18 and elsewhere. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All right. A lot of doctrine in this passage. Besides Matthew 16, we've also got Mark 8, 27 through 30. We've got Luke 9, 18 through 21. So the synoptic gospels all record this event. The Lord tested his disciples with a two-part question. What is the uh, understanding of hoianthropoi, the people? What's the, what's word on the street? What's common opinion? Conventional wisdom. But what do you think? And why is your understanding different from what the general public at large thinks? World at large thinks, uh, you know, Big Bang, evolution, um, whatever, moral relativity, homosexual acceptance, or whatever. You know, that's, that's what the world thinks. What do you think? How has the Word of God shaped your thinking? Two questions centered on the identity of Jesus. The I am who do you say that I am? The specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah is non-negotiable. The expected prophet was another debate. See, some say you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Because Moses said, after me will come a prophet. And that was speaking of the Christ. But they debated it and said, well... Maybe there's going to be the Christ and maybe there's going to be a prophet. Okay? But the Bible makes clear that he is the prophet that Moses spoke about there in, in uh, that passage. The confusion of the people. Some say you're John the Baptist, even though he'd already been executed. Some say you're Elijah. Well, Malachi says Elijah's returning. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets, because Moses promised a prophet like him to arise in Deuteronomy 18. Many rabbinic traditions designated Jeremiah as that anticipated great prophet. Nothing in the Bible says Jeremiah is coming back, but the rabbis thought, well, maybe it was him. But Peter has certainty. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Vocabulary there for Christ, Mashiach, or Christos. Anointing. We talked about this in our training class last week. Anointing was the action for the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. He had a triple anointing. The celebration, blessed are you, Makarios. Yep, same as the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. I will build my church. Okay? I will build as a future tense from Oikadameo. The church does not exist at the point of time when Jesus is speaking this in Matthew 16. Okay? When is Jesus speaking this in Matthew 16? Uh, 32 AD. Right? There it is. Episode 46 and 32 AD. We're approaching September of 32 AD when we reach uh, episode 55. So call it the, uh, the summer of 32 AD. And Jesus said, I will build my church. It doesn't exist yet in 32 AD. It doesn't exist until the day of Pentecost, of 33 AD. The church is born on Pentecost, May 24th, 33 AD. My ecclesia. And boy, there was a whole message there. What would Peter have thought of when he heard the word ecclesia? 
what you know when Jesus said, "I will build my ecclesia," what was what, what would Peter have thought? What would the, all the disciples have thought? They don't have a New Testament. They don't know about the coming church. It's mystery. What would they think? Well, they would think about the assembly, the solemn assembly. They would think about the the uh, gathering of Israel, the kahal. All right. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. These are work responsibilities accomplished through entrusted keys. These are the two verbal activities connected with the noun keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What can you do with a key? Two things. You can lock something or you can unlock something, right? That's what a key does. So you can bind or you can loose. Not complicated. Why do people make this stuff so complicated? Actually, it is kind of complicated. The metaphor is simple. The doctrine, we need to understand it. We also need to understand it as it, as it uh, applies to the mystery of the church. Because Jesus is not spoiling mystery doctrine but he is giving a preview we have to go back now with our hindsight of mystery doctrine related to the church to understand what's this about we need to take new testament applications and understand how do we apply this here all right the human activity is accomplished on earth in the subjunctive mood well that's grammatical (laughs) well on earth is us here and now but the subjunctive mood, okay? The whatever, the language of whatever. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven. God does it. So we bind here on earth, but God binds in heaven. And then the order of this is important. Now the whatever is where we have the language of whatever. We have the subjunctive aspects. But um, shall have been bound in heaven. It's already done. It's already done. There is nothing you can bind on this earth that has not already been bound in heaven. There's nothing you can loose on this earth that has not already been loosed in heaven. So the heavenly activity is the reality that has a reflection in time here on this earth. The human activity is accomplished on earth. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven. But it is a, here another grammatical expression, a paraphrastic future perfect participle. Ooh, isn't that great? I love that. But a, perf- a paraphrastic, meaning peri, walking around, okay? It's a roundabout way of saying something. But it's very vivid when it does this. Future perfect participle. I love this. Perfect tense. Completed action with the present ongoing results. So, binding and loosing are idiomatically understood in the sense of forbidding or allowing. No other terms were in more constant use in rabbinic canon law than those of binding and loosing. They represent the legislative and judicial powers of the rabbinic office. This is how they controlled people's lives. All right? Is it permitted? It's not permitted for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Right? And they're freaking out. (laughs) Totally oblivious to the fact that God the Father has been glorified by a miracle and that this lame man is now walking. Okay? 
totally oblivious to the glory of God and this miracle, it is not permitted for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Because their religious control, their legalistic control, was all over binding and loosing. All over what is permitted, what is not permitted. Well, you can walk, but only this far. This is your Sabbath day's journey. Okay? You can... You can you can't move something from inside to outside. So if a beggar, if you're going to give alms to a beggar, make sure he reaches his hand through your window so that you don't break the law by taking coins and reaching your hand out the window to drop the coins in his hand. Then you would have violated a law. So make sure his hand comes through the window. Oh, wait a minute. See, they're straining gnats so they can swallow a camel, right? They're, they're tithing their condiments, their mint and their dill and their cumin. It's like they're going through their spice rack in the kitchen and they're making sure that each one of those little jars, that, that 10%, of each, 10% of their oregano gets poured out. So that, what are they doing? And yet the weightier provisions, are they loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength? Okay. So, binding and loosing. And this comes now to us. This comes now to us. What's permitted? What's not permitted? Do we need authoritative rabbinic decrees? Okay? In Islam, they call them fatwas. (laughs) Authoritative Islamic jurisprudence that says, this is permitted, this is not permitted. Okay? By the way, capturing 267 virgin Christian girls and enslaving them? raping them, turning them into sex slaves, making them convert to Islam, forcing them to marry perverted old Muslim men. Permitted in Islam. In the Quran, in the Hadith, in the Sharia. It's permitted. It's good. It's considered to be an imitation of Muhammad. Okay? So, Islam, Judaism, Christianity as far as what is provided for the determination of what is permitted, what is not permitted, binding and loosing. Okay. We have Scripture that grants to us a by-present reality of heaven and earth, the operation of a heavenly people with an earthly ministry field. They're going to interact with the heavenly, earthly dynamic. And that's you and me today. What is spoken in the singular to Peter is then repeated in the plural to the apostles. The entrusted key speaks of authority. The keys speak of authority and do not communicate access as much as they communicate stewardship. And then the warning not to reveal this. Not to reveal this. As it ends here in verse 20. He warned the disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the hinge moment. This is the hinge moment. He's done two things here. He has spoken of mystery doctrine church. Okay? Something that they're not going to have a clue about until Pentecost. But he breaks the, 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 he, the use of the word church there. And then secondly, he says, tell nobody I'm the Christ. He starts to tell them, I'm going to go to the cross. From that time. From that time. Verse 20. From that time. In other words, this is a hinge moment. After this, things are different. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. Okay? This is the hinge moment because it's from that time. All right, any questions on Peter's great confession? That's seven hours and 15 minutes. You guys are great. How do you do that? Yes, sir. I believe, um, and, and this is, becomes very common from this point to right up to the cross. He's no longer proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is no longer announcing himself as the Christ. In other words, don't think that the kingdom of heaven is at hand anymore. Don't think that I'm going to throw off the bonds of Rome. Don't think that you're going to have political deliverance. That is, and now the whole focus is going to the cross. The nation has rejected him. The nation has rejected him. So now he's got, he's got about eight months now to prepare his disciples for, uh, for the cross. Any other questions? Well, if you do, uh, question and answer time tonight, 7.30. We have our question and answer time. We've gotten a little thin lately on uh, the Wednesday evening questions, so uh, we have an opportunity to bring that up tonight. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you have taught us in this series. And we expect, Father, um, an endless supply to review and refresh and re-listen and relearn and restudy again and again and again, these, these powerful lessons you've given us. Thank you for our Savior who makes this all possible. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.